um, to the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It's My gone. name is Tal. I'm a first year MBA student at Sloan and part of the organizing team <laughs> for the conference. No, I'm so excited to see everyone finally here and the conference <laughs> coming to reality. So I'm honored to announce our panel today. This I'm is sure the Sports and Society Redefining Sports Culture and Organizations presented by Wasserman. Our panelists today are Jessica Berman, Commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, Johanna Ferris, Senior VP and General Manager of Call of Duty at Activision Blizzard. Our panel today will be moderated by Jackie McMullen, retired senior writer at ESPN. So to give you a sense of how we'll do this, we'll run the panel for about 40 minutes. Um, Jackie and the panelists would like to give a little extra time for you all to do Q&A, so we'll do 15 minutes of Q&A. Um, you can submit your questions on Twitter using the hashtag sports and society. It's also on the slides if you need a reminder. Um, and then our questions will then be selected by Jackie. So with that, I will hand it over to you. Except for Tal, because Tal, come back. <laughs> because I'm the 62-year-old member of the panel, I now have, oh, no. instead of my questions, something about the CIA ordering the Chinese military to invade Taiwan, <laughs> which I don't think we really want to talk about today. I mean, I, we could, but what I do? Sure. I'll, I'll pull it up in the meantime. It's okay. I can start without it. Welcome, everyone. Please excuse my technological ineptness during a Sloan Analytics Conference or something. <laughs> we have two amazing panelists here today who have done something that I'm really excited to say is, I think, sweeping the nation. And that is changing the culture from organizations that were really previously somewhat toxic. Um, just let's start with you, because uh, women's soccer, just this Yates report that came out detailing sexual harassment, sexual allegations, all of these things. You came in after that, but when you read that report, what was the one thing that just made your jaw drop? Yeah, well, um, I'll say on behalf of our incredible athletes, I look forward to the day when it isn't the first thing people think about when right. they think about women's soccer and women's soccer culture because we have the most incredible athletes, not just female athletes, but just athletes who play in our league. And it is my mission to change the narrative around the NWSL and women's soccer because these women have been fighting for that and haven't had anyone fighting for it on their behalf. When I read the Yates report, um, my first reaction was, and I, I think, I, I hope this would have been a lot of people's reaction, just a human reaction. I cried. I reread some of those horrific sections that read more like a novel than they did a legal mm. investigation. And I was just horrified. I put myself in those women's shoes in different work environments that I've been in and tried to imagine what their life experience has been like and use that to fuel how we correct the future for them and generations to come. And uh, like most things in my life and how I've learned to deal with challenges and other obstacles, you sort of sit, force yourself to sit in the pain so that you can absorb as much learning as possible and then pick yourself up and say, I'm grateful to be in a position to actually 
influence the future, sometimes for seismic and systemic change to occur, you really do need to sort of bottom out. And I think that happened for this, for this league over the prior 12 to 15 months. And the circumstances that are presented in front of us give us an opportunity to make a difference and ensure that that never happens again. So, Johanna, you, you mentioned, Jen, that your previous experiences resonated a little bit when you read this report. And, Johanna, you came from the NFL, which certainly endured its share of various types of scandals. And then you come to Activision Blizzard, and all sorts of things happen explosive reports, employee walkouts, all that. How much did you draw again from previous experience to say, okay, I have an idea of some of this, and, and how does that help you when you're trying to? complete a strategy to move your organization forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it was interesting. I was 12 years at the NFL, but my last year in particular, I was really doing a lot of the work behind the scenes with some of the fallouts with Colin Kaepernick um, dynamics, let's call it, and learned a lot in that process. One of the things to answer your question that I think gets lost sometimes in the headlines or the things that are externalized around a crisis of sorts is the human quotient and the need to really meet people in that pause before you recommend taking an action, let alone how you execute on that action. Right. So why I say that is a lot um, of what I experienced as an executive leader on the Activision Blizzard side and Call of Duty in particular was that moment of taking in the challenges that were being reported and to not have too much of a bias for action. Usually you read that and you want to just fix it right away. And one thing I will say that also doesn't get portrayed as often is how vast the majority of the workforce wanted to just roll up the sleeves and start to get better, start to improve, right? Men, women included. Um, but what was required in both instances, I'd argue, was before we jump into action, we have to actually look in the mirror and get into listening mode, mm -hmm. big time. And flexing, listening with the eye towards um, progress takes longer sometimes than you would like it to be. Um, and there was months and months of, of very candid listening, very candid discussion to take the pause and really understand you know, how is this impacting different people at different levels? Um, what is maybe not being said, but how do we create psychologically safe spaces for those conversations to now um, be out in the open? Right. And then how do you take that feedback and, and step into the fires, so to speak, um, versus running away from them? And I commend every single one of my colleagues and, and leadership and so many other partners who said, yeah, this is an opportunity for growth in as much as it's a pain point. And, um, we all want to lock arms and make this the absolute best company to work for, bar none. So you get this enhanced responsibility. You're young. You're black. You're a woman. I would say probably not. Well, it was called a frat boy culture. I would say you're definitely not a frat boy. So I wonder if that was helpful in some ways when you're asking these employees to trust you, because it's all about trust, I would think, for both of you. You have to somehow regain the trust of these people who have been grievously injured. So the fact that you looked a little different, maybe sounded, do you think that was helpful? To a degree. I mean, no Greek life for me, so I, I can't relate. But I, I think the um, my impulse, to be very candid, was, again, to 
ga create gathering spaces with no agenda, because I, you know, just meet people where they are um, and, and build rooms where there's, there's no right or wrong, there's just an opportunity for a pulse check. And in particular, I would say, though, it was maybe helpful to be uh, one of the few higher ranking women, mm -hmm. um, certainly on the, on the business side for the company as well, to, to gather women at more junior ranks and say, okay. hey, let's, let's get together, Let me, let's get dinner. Not because I, just, let's just do that. Mm -hmm. Just start um, there. Yeah. Um, just so we can be human about it because this is hard. Yeah. Be, and why I say that is oftentimes that, again, that bias reaction usually says, don't get together unless you know what you're gonna do next. Sometimes you just need to have that moment. And I was really um, pleasantly surprised by how, I guess, my presence or my relatability on those levels. I'm also the executive champion for Activision Blizzard's Black Employee Network, and I'll be at a different slice um, of an experience. It does create bridges that maybe um, others may not have felt as comfortable to, to kind of get together and feel mm -hmm. safe in that because they can see themselves in me, perhaps. Okay. So Jess, take me into a room. You're meeting with some of these athletes that some have gone public, some haven't. That's interesting, I think an interesting dynamic in itself. So you sit down with them for the first time and probably you didn't know any of them. So how does that conversation start? Yeah, well, um, it sounds like we had a similar approach. The first thing I did when I took the job was start my listening tour. And <laughs> I thought it was really important to be in person in every single market, despite the fact that that meant that I had to make a lot of other both personal and professional sacrifices because even our employees at the league office were traumatized. Mm -hmm. But I really believed and continue to believe that the unlock of this league capitalizing on its potential is, has to start with the players. It has to start with their trust and that that trust would unlock a sequence of events that could really change the course of our league's growth trajectory. And so I went to every single market in my first three months on the job and I sat in person with as many players as I possibly could. I established a almost daily cadence of communication with the head of the union, Megan Burke, mm -hmm. and started with listening, with a bias for being what I describe as long-term greedy. You have to sort of embrace the vulnerability around not having all the answers and recognizing that their experience and what they communicate directly and indirectly is going to give you the roadmap for the future. And it was clear to me that there was no roadmap. There was no established course of action. And from those conversations, it became clear to me that there were three steps that had to occur before we could even begin to transform the league. The first was just a willingness to face down the facts. And so the Yates report came out, but we also made the decision to release publicly our joint investigation, which was done with our player association. And they were part of the process every step of the way, which in and of itself builds trust because when management 
takes on these challenges on their own, either because they want to control the outcome or because they're afraid of what could be learned, it doesn't completely establish the foundation of trust that's necessary to move forward. So our union was part of every single conversation. They knew every piece of information and know every piece of information that I know about the investigation that occurred for the 10 years of the history of the league into every single club's culture. And as a labor lawyer, I will say, as a management side labor lawyer, that was a hard thing to wrap my head around because we are trained to protect right. our client. In this circumstance, it was so unique and so systemic and so toxic that there was no other choice. And so facing down the facts was so clearly, jointly and transparently to our fans was so important to the players. And so we did that on December 14, we released the joint investigation and I really viewed that as step one of the process. It was also clear to me that the players expected accountability. And I think if you read about any misconduct in any industry, in any circumstance, this trend of identifying the facts, facing them down, and accountability is a necessary precursor to how you move forward. And so from a personal perspective, I am eight months into my new role as the commissioner. I report to our board of governors, which is made up of the 12 owners in our league, and it is now my job to both rebuild the trust with our players, which so clearly is a threshold gating item for us to build the league, and also wrap my head around actually imposing discipline on the people who just hired me. And the only way to approach that is with integrity and using the lens of making decisions that I could explain to my children, that I was proud to make, that passed the tests of how my character would be evaluated and knowing that this won't, this will be viewed through the lens of the league moving forward, but also my own professional legacy. And so balancing all the different interests on, I believe it was January 10th, we issued our corrective action statement, which outlined all the right. discipline for all of the individuals and organizations that were named in our joint investigation. And then the third step is really to focus on the future, which is our systemic reform. And that work is underway. We've already implemented a myriad of both policy, programmatic, and structural changes that exist not just at the league office, but in every single club. And uh, that, that is not going to be, unlike the release of the facts and the corrective action, there is no box to check. It is something that we are going to learn as we go and be flexible and iterative because I don't think there's a single professional sports league that has either encountered what we encountered and also made the commitments that we have made to really face down these cultural issues, which we know are not unique 
to either our league, women's sports, men's sports, or even our country. These are issues that are pervasive. It just happens to be that we have our dirty laundry on display for the world to see. I view that as an opportunity for us to lead with purpose and integrity and set the example, and we'll make mistakes along the way, but we will create the case study that we hope will be able to be leveraged and scaled in other industries and throughout certainly our industry. Yeah, just one build on that too. I think to, to Jessica's point, it also speeds up playbook making. You have a playbook now, to your point. It, it never ends. It, it is, it's an ongoing process right. of trying to become the greatest company or organization in the world. But a, a crisis of sorts can also um, really just take you into a new gear. It galvanizes for un deeply unfortunate reasons, but it right. still galvanizes people's focus on driving change at a clip that otherwise would not have happened at that pace, right? And so we've experienced <clears throat> the same. So when, when you write the ship financially, when things are going great, there's, you want to make sure that this isn't forgotten, right? You're trying to set this culture. The culture isn't just about being financially successful because if it is, then you fall back to, to old habits, right? So how do, you, how do you safeguard against, okay, we're making progress, people are feeling better, and now we just need to you know, get this league up and running, we need more teams, we need more fight. And how do you balance that? Yeah, I think you, you have to, as a leader, always remind people from where we came, and that will always be part of our story. It's part of our identity. There is no course correction that will change our past. We have learned from it, and we always have to know that that's our Achilles heel. That is the sort of anchor mm -hmm. that almost changed the course of women's soccer in this country to the worse. And we can never lose sight of that. We can never forget that without intentionality around structures and systems and policies, that because of the endemic systemic toxicity of those issues that no one actively created, that our default will be to fall back into those bad habits and bad conduct. And so it takes being proactive. And it's not just sort of back of house, well, now we can shift this to the, to the background. We right. talk a lot about, for example, even internally in board meetings, rebalancing, yes, we need to focus on the future. We're launching a new brand narrative, brand campaign. We hired a completely new um, enterprise business side staff who's going to raise the game and rebuild this league so that people can enjoy their athleticism and capitalize on the Women's World Cup this summer, which we know is going to have catalytic impacts on our business. But just by way of example, we have a Board of Governors meeting next week and systemic reform is on the agenda. We will continue to talk about it. It's my job, it's my responsibility, whether people want to talk about it or not, to continue to keep it at the forefront of how we think about growing our business because without that, we will find ourselves back in the same exact 
circle of toxicity that almost took this league down. Right. And so long as I'm in this seat, I will ensure that it is front and center for our senior leaders internally, in our budget planning and how we think about our growth of our business and how we communicate with our board and with our players because our players won't forget. This is their lived experience, whether it was directly or as bystanders. And they expect that and that has been and will continue to be my promise to them. One of the things I thought to me the most troubling in that Yates report was the idea that there was a, a large group of women who said they were experienced, they, they were, had been emotionally abused, and then an overwhelming number of them said, at the time, they didn't even realize it was an emotional abuse because they were so used to it within their environment. And Isn't that true for so many of well, us? Well, it is. I, I mean, gonna, I... 100%. When you... I, just from a personal perspective, I might read a book about trauma that someone has experienced and relate to their experience, not ever knowing that the relatable experience that I had in my life was within the same vein of what they're describing. 100%. And it unlocks for you an epiphany that I was participating in this toxic cycle, right? I mean, yeah. that's what happened for the majority of our players. I can say, thankfully, the most egregious misconduct that was described in the Yates report was the minority of right, situations. Right. Um, they were isolated. However, misconduct in organizations, and I've learned, I think, more than I ever wanted to know about how toxic cultures are perpetuated, it lives on a spectrum. So you have your most egregious misconduct, which is what was the three examples or right. representations that were highlighted in the Yates report. What we learned in the joint investigative report, which is the report that we commissioned, mm -hmm. is that there's an entire spectrum of misconduct and that all of those sort of lead, as they are perpetuated and tolerated, it leads people down to continue to move on the spectrum of more egregious misconduct to the extent right. people are not told what is expected of them. That's, my, that's our job, that's the league's job to set clear, an expectation, clear expectations and to provide the tools and resources for everyone in our ecosystem, not just our players, but our coaches, our managers, our governors, our employees of what their role and responsibility is in setting the culture. And that's the piece that was missing mm -hmm. and that allowed for this to continue to devolve into what ultimately resulted in the Yates report. I, th I think it's really interesting to talk about that. I, so I was a 24-year-old female covering the NBA, the only one most of the time in the locker room, in the press room, in the coach's office. And I look back on those experiences now, which were a long time ago, and I realize now that I was almost in a cycle of, okay, just if something happened to me, if someone made a sexual advance, whether it be a player, another journalist, a coach, whatever, just get through it. Don't rock the boat. Yep, just get, you're new at this, just do it. Get through it unscathed to the best of your ability. And I look back on it now, and realize that I was doing myself a disservice and people who followed me. And so I know both of you have been involved in areas. I'm sure, Johanna, you have had your own personal experiences. And 
you don't have to share the specifics of them, but what you draw from that and how it helps you in this environment. So you can sit with someone and be genuine when you're talking to them about, hey, I know how you feel. Yeah, I mean, listening to you both talk, I'm just thinking more and more. I've seen this, especially in the last couple of years. I think the future of leadership profile is going to include the empathy quotient, the ability to steer and design and, uh, and meet challenges that you don't see coming. Um, it's one thing to have the traditional chops and to be a commercial leader and drive great, you know, um, more obvious metrics of success, right? It's a totally different time now, I think, where the, the new future of leadership, and I just hear this a lot, frankly, I also just believe it, is some profile that also can um, deliver a more authentic, genuine, uh, empathetic, uh, human-oriented way of leading. Because guess what? You know, businesses are just a, a conglomerate of people. Mm -hmm. People have a lot of things that they're working on right now, both professionally and personally, and all the more so in the wake of a pandemic. The entire, we've all gone through some form of trauma, whether we realize it or not. And now um, I just continue to see that, you, that the need for leading both maybe on the, on the quantitative and, and, and more rational side, I'm a commercial leader, right? That's why I'm a business executive. And yet that business doesn't get done if I also can't um, create these spaces for, for humanity to, to, to really uh, meet these moments and challenges. Um, I agree as well. I think when I was asked to speak um, to parts of the company, um, and even now when I do it, there is another reason why it's important to have diverse and inclusive leadership. Because again, it, it allows for a different style or lived experiences, good, bad, or in between, that foster more of an inclusive opportunity for others coming up the ranks to say, wow, okay, she, she's probably gone through some things just to get to where she's at, I can do it too. Or I can go to her and have a conversation with her that I might otherwise not feel comfortable having. Right. You, you, you've gone through your own experiences in locker rooms. I know that there are people who I'm sure are aspiring to do the same or are doing it, would love to you know, have a more candid conversation because you've already, you know, you've done that, you've taken those steps. So again, it's just another reason why I think we, we throw around DE&I all the time and a lot of people throw it around maybe too loosely, but I've seen it you know, first, firsthand, um, the differences of behavior and how people change um, for the better when you have uh, different lived experiences and styles and backgrounds to be able to foster different types of conversations. That's where you're gonna get to the heart of the matter. I'll just, if, if it's okay, just to your point about the different lenses through which hiring decisions are being made, um, I have to, and I, I've actually never really thought about it, but hearing you speak, makes me really want to acknowledge and celebrate our owners in the NWSL because when I was interviewing for the position and in the final round, I sat in front of the Board of Governors and very intentionally didn't present a business plan. I started my presentation with a reference to, you can look at my resume, you can look at my bio, you can talk to my references about my core competencies in my ability to get the X's and O's done. Exactly. Yeah. 
and you can decide that my experience is either relevant or not relevant? That's like a profile question. It's kind of an interesting way to go at it. Do you want a commercial revenue generator? Do you want an operational leader? Do you want someone with a legal background? Really what this interview should be about, and I, I literally said this to the board in my final interview, is you're hiring a person. You're hiring a person whose judgment you trust, who you believe has value, al values alignment with the things that you care about most, and who you believe will approach decision making in a way that's consistent with how you expect this business to be led. Those are qualitative mm -hmm. characteristics. Those don't live on a resume and they don't live in a bio. They may or may not come up in a reference check, but if I was in their shoes and this is how I approach the final interview, that's what I would want to know if I were hiring a CEO because most of my job is about setting up processes for decision-making, how I empower people or not, what are the checkpoints that I determine are the places where I want to be involved, how do I effectively lead? And there's probably a wide spectrum of styles and approaches, and the question for the board was not whether I'm good or bad. I mean, I, I would hope that anyone interviewing for the role was qualified at that point in the process. It's do do the things that I care about most and the way that I am going to approach decision making. And I took them through different examples of hard issues that I've had to tackle in my career and how I approached those situations. And I asked them to ask themselves, is that the leader you want? Share, can you share one? Uh, of, of those examples? Yes. Um, sure. I, um, yes, I talked about uh, some of the challenges around what I, having never been a commissioner before, this is my first role as commissioner, and having advised and consulted commissioners throughout my life in a variety of different roles because I've worked for commissioners my whole career, I have found myself in situations where it was very clear to me that how you build consensus around hard decisions would be the key to whoever was going to sit in this seat, knowing that each of our owners have a very different view sure. of both where the league should be and by when and how we get there. And my job was, is to ensure that we are aligned, whether everybody agrees or disagrees, in the direction we're heading, and that is sometimes like herding sheep or cat or I don't know, whatever animal <laughs> you think is most challenging to herd. And so I gave examples of situations where I've had to manage divergent constituents, and my approach is very transparently to ensure that every voice has an opportunity to be heard. I don't believe in authoritative leadership. I, I don't believe in dragging people to a place where they don't want to be or don't understand where they're going. I believe in process, not surprisingly, because I'm a lawyer by training. I, I believe in meeting people where they are, even if it means that we take a little bit longer to get there. I believe in patience. I believe in discussion. I'm as someone who believes in DEI, I'm comfortable with debate 
and discord. I'm also comfortable making a decision where everybody agrees to disagree. That's very much okay in my book. I don't need every single person to say this is what we need to do, but I also don't believe in making decisions without getting input from key stakeholders. And so that was very much a threshold item, even for me, to make sure that the people for whom I'd be working were supportive of that style, because that is probably in sum what I do on a every single day basis. That is the summary of my job. When you report to 24 people, that, that is my job. So Johanna, same idea for you here. You're trying to build this new culture. You're listening, relationships. I think our phone call that we had before this conference, I think you mentioned relationships about four or five times. I'm assuming that's the cornerstone of getting people. I wonder if there was a moment during this journey you've been on where you're, you have very successfully rebuilt the culture at this company. Was there a moment when you said, oh, I think they're getting it. You know, what, what was that moment, if you could share that with us? Yeah, I mean, there were a, a, a couple of indicators. Because again, we're, we're almost two years out now from, from a lot of that uh, apex. But one moment I would say in particular, so I mentioned the, the executive leadership team getting together, and that was, call it August. Um, by September, so about a, a month later, um, we had the entire Call of Duty organization, frankly worldwide, um, operating a major high production event on the eve of launching our beta. For, for those who don't know, beta is a huge part of launching a, a major release of our game where you effectively get to trial it out right before the finished product goes live. And uh, we put on this new event. Uh, we had the biggest names in gaming and entertainment flown into LA to get their hands on the game. And why I say that is that's the, the rational playbook. This is gonna work, this is gonna drive engagement. Let's, let's take that risk and do it. And, and it, it, it was great. What I saw um, after that day was the enormous pride that was seeping out of every single person by the thousands who had a hand in that event. It was, I wasn't polling people, I wasn't asking for it. It was actually kind of a surprise to me because I was so in the trenches trying to get launch off the ground. And we all just took this step back and there was just so much energy, positivity, I love my job, I love this team, this is amazing. And again, you can't manufacture that. That has to happen um, organically. And we all point to Call of Duty Next, which was the name of that event, as that moment where everyone felt like, yeah, I'm so proud to be here. I'm so proud to be a part of this effort. And that was before the launch hit historic sure. you know, numbers. So that's an, another great indicator. It wasn't because we did so well, I'm proud to do this. It was right. prior to that, and, and then look what happened. So that was a, a key moment for me, and, and um, I think it really just swung the tides and gave us that type of workplace culture momentum that you, you really want to see embodied as you see the commercial success uh, roll out. Very proud of that, and, and the engagement survey results that we've taken to survey our workforce ever since. The, you know, the ratings have skyrocketed. It's just about the pride of, of being a part of the company and being a part of the team. That's the other part of when you go through something tough and you come out the other side together, oftentimes, surprisingly, the bonds and the positivity that you renew, if not strengthen, um, are really powerful because now you've gone through something um, quite difficult and challenging, but you've come out better for it. Sure. And that's what we're seeing now. Jess, do you have one, one of those aha moments when you said, okay, 
Yeah, I, if I could give two. You are loud. Um, Does anyone you. disagree? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first, uh, again, we talked earlier about our pliers and my very intentional strategy of starting with them and knowing and still believing that they hold the keys to not just our business success, but our fans trusting the league, which will ultimately lead to our business success. And um, anecdotally, when I started, I was told that in the 2021 NWSL championship, which came on the heels of the athletic article right. that exposed all of the uh, systemic culture issues in the league and some of the sexual abuse, the league invited players who weren't playing in the championship to come to the event. And I was told that we couldn't either convince or even pay people to come. They were so disengaged wow. with the league that they just didn't want to be there. They just wouldn't support it. Wow. They felt that if I don't have to be there to play, I have no desire mm. to be there. It was too painful and it was too, it was too much of an ask mm -hmm. for them. Um, and so I sort of made it my mission uh, in the summer as we were planning for the championship that this was going to be our sort of moment of like a pulse check. Mm -hmm. Are we able to get our players to feel good about celebrating our season as a proxy for do they support the league? And so I, my aha moment was like, and I was strangely obsessed in the days leading up to the championship with like RSVPs and which players were saying they were coming and- um, Understandable though. And, and really thinking about the people who said they were coming, the people who were on the fence and what have I done or not done or what have we as a league done or not done to rebuild fences, to mend fences with them. And I was really proud. So we had 62 players come who were not playing. So with the players who were actually playing in the game, a third of the league was in Washington, D.C. with us for the championship. They were doing autograph signings. They were enjoying the event. And so many of them came over to me over the course of the weekend and said, we are here because we know that us being here tells the league, the owners, the fans, sponsors, media partners that we believe in the future of the league and that we're ready to support it. And we did a survey of all players after the championship and 92% of our players said that they believe the league is heading in a positive direction. Oh, and great. so for me, that was my, like all the motivation in the world that I needed to validate that we're doing all the right things and we have to continue to do the things that we have been doing. The second moment for me, which is really more about, um, I guess, my, my personal uh, values and how grateful I feel to be in this role, to use the power of sport to change the world, given the cultural relevance of our players and how incredible our athletes are, was bringing my two boys to a Gotham FC match. Gotham's our team in New York. Anybody who lives there, please come. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we were at the match and uh, the week prior, the league had announced that Eli Manning was investing in the team 
and Eli Manning was at the game, and my boys are huge New York Giants fans. And so in my mind, because I too am a product of a bit of systemic sexism, thought like that was going to be the motivator for my boys to be excited to be there. And after the game, we brought them down to the field and Eli Manning was standing to the right and our players were doing media and talking to fans, season ticket holders on the left. And my two boys who are 12 and 15, without any direction or prompting from me, just beelined for our athletes. And I was just in awe of the moment and approached them and said, like, do you know Eli Manning is like right there? Mm. <laughs> and Eli saw this whole exchange and my boys were like, why would we go talk to Eli Manning when Jasmine Spencer and Midge Purse are right here? And I was like, wow. Like yeah, that for good. me was like, we have such an opportunity to use this sport and women's soccer to truly change the way people view women and girls in this country. And of course, Eli Manning was like, absolutely. Like, I am so irrelevant in this equation. Like, they should be talking to those athletes. And um, he's a he is girl. He's a girl dad, and he was like so. He's excited. a sensitive topic in this this area. Um, <laughs> yes, um, but he he was so also shared in my enthusiasm in that moment as an investor um, that like that moment sort of dispelled the notion that people won't support women's sports like. What is that? Why, why do people say that when we just haven't given them an opportunity to see it at its excellence? So those, are my, those are my unlock moments. As a, as a boy mom, too, you'll appreciate it. I was a soccer player as well, but just even a couple weeks ago, they were asking, because they're into the EPL now and all kinds, mm -hmm. of, all kinds of soccer. And uh, they're like, Mom, who's your favorite soccer team? And I was like, it's obvious. They're like, well, well, who? And I was like, the US women's national team. And they're like, that's a good call. We agree. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, they don't, you know, they distinguish. They, they agree on greatness. Yeah. You know? So. All right. So we're going to take some questions, if you're ready. Sure. All right, Johanna, we'll start with you. So how can organizations, teams, and leagues put in place guardrails to present, pre excuse me, prevent systemic abuse and toxicity? So when there is a leadership change, I'm, not, I'm butchering this question, um, the progress you have made can continue. So let's just say, you know, you re you retire after a yeah. I mean, like, look, focus group of one. Do, don't take. I'm not. I'm not a trained HR professional. I'm not a trained crisis manager, right? right? So, but I I've lived through enough to say, if you've heard it um, from both Jessica and I, I think you have to really get that pulse check again before you say like that worked for the NFL. Let's copy and paste that and and do it for the NWSL. It doesn't always work that way. You have to really get into the nuances. What is the crisis? How long has it been going on? Is it systemic? Is it, mm -hmm. is it something different? And um, that part of the analysis and the listening without bias, the listening without an agenda, the listening without trying to rush to the solve, because the solve may take 20 years, is probably the most important work that you do. And so strengthen the muscle for listening and, and feedback to, to really get under the hood and, and make sure the diagnostic check is appropriate because the more um, accurate you are there, at least nuanced you are with that, the more um, relevant your solutions will be for your particular organization. 
So I would think even within the work you've done at Activision Blizzard, that's been true on a, I wouldn't say an individual by individual basis, but I'm sure the concerns that came out of that were, were varied, yeah, right? Yeah, look, and like I said, we're a company of 10,000 people all over the world, a very disaggregated workforce when you think about the global nature of our company. And every company has its challenges, as we talked about. It's mm -hmm. not specific to, to R2 by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, really roll up the sleeves and, uh, and understand um, how do you localize the problem and how do you create empathy around that problem. And then if you have gaps, identify the gaps, hire against the gaps, create policy and programs uh, along those gaps, and, in, and create accountability that you embody what you say you're gonna do. And we've, we've, said, we've said and done as much, and you know, we just continue to be so proud of, of being a part of, of this organization, and we're only gonna get better from here. That's great, right. Okay, Jess, for you. Um, fully recognizing the sensitivities and differences around each situation. You mentioned your listening tour. What were the one or two most impactful questions that you asked while you were on those listening tours? Questions. Um, I think uh, the focus of my questions was, were really about trying to understand less about the misconduct that occurred and more about why are players and bystanders, including many people who had to have at least observed some of what was going on, why, what were the barriers systemically to surfacing those concerns so that something could be done about it? or when they were surfaced or tried to be surfaced, what was ineffectively deployed as a response? Mm -hmm. Because we all know, and I'm actually an employment lawyer, so I think a lot about workplace culture. Mm -hmm. To have a goal or a standard that you're not gonna have misconduct is a bit silly. That's not our goal. We know that there are going to be Sometimes bad actors, we hope not, with appropriate screening and hiring. Um, but more often than not, not bad actors, decent people who make bad decisions. So what you strive for in an organization is to create the kind of culture where people feel safe raising their hand to say, there's a problem here, or I'm not sure if there's a problem, but I don't, it doesn't feel, feel right. Sure. Can you, I, I, you don't have to put it on the front page of the New York Times. You don't have to, you know, stop the presses. Right. But can someone look into this and help me figure out, like, why, why is this not sitting right with me? Right. Yeah. That, like, early intervention just wasn't happening. And that is the missing piece that puts an organization in a position to actually do something about it before you're at the point of the Yates report. There are, like I right. talked about the spectrum, there's a hundred steps in between the Yates report, the mm. sort of literal like egregious sexual abuse and the sort of warning signs that yeah, the happen. nuances. The nuances, because right. it happens, it, you don't go from like everything is hunky-dory to sexual abuse. That's, never. There, it, yeah. it never, actually never happens that way. There is so many opportunities to intervene and to address the issue before it becomes a business challenge or a systemic culture issue. And so 
my focus and my questions to people in my listening tour were, what are the things that existed that stopped players and others from raising their hands and asking for help? And what are the proactive steps we can do to create the kind of system where people are willing to bring us in to solve the issue together before it gets to the point where it's a complete disaster. Right. And um, because those isolated incidents, when they ha to the extent they happened, that's, that's sort of the output. What I was focused on is what are the lived experiences that led to that, that point that, that. Weren't, that weren't addressed. Right. Final question for you, Jess. You work for your owners. You work for your board of directors. I wonder in that final interview, when you're talking to them about taking this on for them and pretty much saving their bacon, as far as I'm concerned, you've really, it's amazing what you guys have accomplished in a short amount of time, how you've changed the culture. How much of it was you saying, you have to trust me and let me do my thing? I mean, you work for them, but, and I, every commissioner I've ever known in sports has to walk that very fine line. So how difficult is that for you? Yeah, um, I think it's recognizing where we are in our growth cycle and not, to Johanna's point, not just blindly applying the ways that the other commissioners work with their board because those leagues have been around 100 years mm -hmm. and they are very established and they also have 30 teams, 30 plus teams. It's a very different dynamic when you're talking about 12 teams. Right. It's a very small group of people. And the other point that is unique is that I could say to a person universally, every single person in, our, in my boardroom cares so deeply about this league. So they want to be involved. Mm -hmm. And um, probably the fact that that's part of my inherent leadership approach, which is to bring people along, mm -hmm. is I'm imagining something that was important to them when they asked me to take this job because what we're working on, they deserve and want to have visibility into how the sausage is getting made. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of input along the way and exchange of ideas. And um, I, I actually believe that that will get us to the best possible result and also unlock the investment required to bring this league to the next level, which if I had to sort of summarize my broadest possible takeaway, putting aside the most egregious culture byproducts that we've seen in sexual abuse, the fundamental issue with women's soccer and the NWSL in particular that led to our culture issues was lack of investment. It is the common thread through every single issue that we have had. And so it is my job at the end of the day to inform the board and include the board so that they feel safe and comfortable giving us the resources we need to take the league to its highest possible potential. Without that, I don't have the ability to unlock that investment. So you mean emotional and, and financial investment? Yeah. 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 I, what I'm specifically talking about is financial investment because the league was so sorely under-resourced. When I joined in April, we had, I think, 18 full-time employees for a league of 12 wow. teams. Yeah, that's good. We are now at almost 50. 
So in 10 months, we've more than doubled the size of the league office. We got office space on Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. 